The Catechism of the Catholic Church tells us, quote, the existence of the spiritual non-corporeal beings that sacred scripture usually calls angels is a truth of faith. Regarding this truth, the Catechism adds that, quote, the witness of scripture is as clear as the unanimity of tradition. Writing more than 700 years earlier, St. Thomas Aquinas acknowledged this truth as a believing Catholic, but he also acknowledged it as a philosopher since he held that the existence and something of the nature of angels can be discovered by natural reason. And so from the start of his career to the end, he complements his theological consideration of the angels with a distinctly philosophical consideration of them as well. So it's this philosophical consideration that I'm going to discuss today, addressing what Aquinas thinks we can discern about the angels independently of revelation, looking in principle uh, or most of all at his arguments for their existence. So to begin with, we should first familiarize ourselves with Aquinas's terminology he notes that the name angel is, is derived from the Greek word angelos, meaning messenger. And Aquinas tells us that the angels are called such because they make divine things known to human beings, as Gabriel did at the Annunciation. Unlike Mary, however, we know of their role as messengers only through revelation. For that reason, Aquinas tends to reserve the name angel for his theological considerations of these beings. When speaking of them in more philosophical contexts, he employs a number of other names. Most commonly, he follows Aristotle in calling them separate substances because they exist separately from matter as beings that are pure forms. For the same reason, at other times, he terms them spiritual substances. And because the proper activity of an immaterial being is intellectual activity, Aquinas also follows Avicenna at times in terming them intelligences. And again, he thinks that one can offer philosophical arguments for the existence of these beings. Now, according to Aquinas, the branch of philosophy to which it belongs to study these separate substances is metaphysics not as the very subject of the science, but rather as the principles or causes of its subject, which is what he terms in Latin ens commune, or being in general. In looking at his considerations on the existence of immaterial beings, most scholars have understandably focused their attention on Aquinas's arguments for the existence of God rather than the angels, not surprisingly, what little attention that has been paid to these arguments has focused on their philosophical strength. In the terms of the medieval, scholars have asked whether these arguments are demonstrative, in other words, whether they conclude definitively to the existence of angels, or whether they are merely dialectical, showing merely the probability or what we might term the plausibility of this conclusion. The general consensus has been that these arguments are not, in fact, demonstrative, which is a view with which I'm sympathetic. But what I've found curious in my research is that most scholars have neglected a more basic question. What did Aquinas himself consider the strength of his arguments to be? So in reviewing these arguments today, I hope to show that he considers at least some of his arguments to be demonstrative. As we'll see, addressing this question is of interest to us, not only from an historical standpoint, but also from a philosophical one, because it reveals some fundamental aspects, both of Aquinas's angelology, but as well as his views regarding the very structure, the metaphysical structure of the universe in which we live. We find Aquinas offering philosophical considerations of the angels in all of his major systematic works and in several of his lesser ones. But his most detailed arguments for their existence appear in three works. In the Summa Contra Gentiles, 
in the Prima Pars of the Summa Theologiae, and in the set of disputed questions entitled On Spiritual Creatures. Now, in the first two works, Aquinas also offers arguments for the existence of God, but his treatment of the question of God's existence differs in some noteworthy aspects from his treatment concerning his consideration of the existence of angels. Before offering arguments for the existence of God in the Summa Contra Gentiles and the Summa Theologiae, Aquinas first addresses whether it is even demonstrable that God exists, whether we can prove definitively. Now, regarding the existence of angels, he offers no similar consideration. So that, that fact makes it difficult for us to determine whether he views the existence of angels to be demonstrable, much less whether he considers any of his own arguments to be demonstrations. Perhaps the most explicit statement that he gives on this topic occurs in his early commentary on Boethius's De Trinitate. Aquinas there expresses a somewhat, uh, a somewhat optimistic view regarding the ability of human reason to discern at least the fact that angels exist. He observes the following. The quiddity, in other words, the essence or nature of separate substances, recall that's another name for those beings that he also calls angels, cannot be known through those things that are grasped by the senses. Although through sensible things, we can come to know that the aforementioned substances exist, and we can come to know some of their conditions. Therefore, by no speculative science can we know about a separate substance what it is. Our mind is proportioned to knowing the natures of material things whom we encounter, which we encounter through experience. So we can't know the natures of these immaterial beings in this lifetime, although through the speculative sciences, he tells us, we can know that they exist, that they are, and some of their characteristics, namely that they're intellectual, incorruptible, and the like. So in this early work, we find Aquinas expressing a confidence that scientific knowledge, which is to say demonstrative knowledge, can establish the existence of separate substances, implying in his plural usage of the term that he's referring not only to God, but to the angels as well. With that said, he doesn't offer any arguments here for their existence, so we need to look to other texts to see how he thinks we can reach this conclusion. Of the three texts that I mentioned a moment ago, where he offers his most detailed arguments for their existence, uh, the earliest is the Summa Contra Gentiles. There he asked the question in chapter 91, whether any intellectual substances exist that are not united to bodies. Uh, now, the point of clarification there is that the human soul is in a way an intellectual substance, but it is united to the body, to bodies, human bodies. The question is, are there any beings that are out there created spiritual substances that are not united in any way to bodies? And there he runs through eight brief arguments to show that such beings do indeed exist. The problem is he offers no clear indication which of these arguments, if any of them, he considers to be demonstrative. And what adds to the uncertainty of this question is that at the outset of the Contra Gentiles, his, he notes that his method of procedure in this work will entail presenting both demonstrative and probable arguments. And he doesn't signal to us usually which is which when he offers these. He just offers as many as he can. And so we have no clear indication in this work of the strength that Aquinas assigns to any one of his arguments for the existence of angels. Fortunately, in the later work entitled On Spiritual Creatures, we begin to get a clearer picture of Aquinas's thoughts on this topic, namely in Article 5. So in what follows, I'm going to focus my attention principally on the arguments he provides in this work. I'm going to return to the Summa Theologiae later by way of offering a comparison to the conclusions that we draw 
from looking at unspiritual creatures. In this work, he considers whether any created spiritual substances exist that are not united to a body. Again, same question. Aquinas begins with a brief history of philosophical thought on the topic. As he explains, since our knowledge begins with sensation in the beginning, the first philosophers thought that nothing exists except bodies. Through intellectual reasoning, they eventually were able to transcend corporeal substances, Aquinas tells us, to arrive at a knowledge of incorporeal ones. And he notes uh, that first among these is the fellow you see on this screen here, the pre-Socratic philosopher Anaxagoras, who reasoned to the existence of a higher intellect to move and separate everything that was mixed together in matter. So all things were contained in matter uh, in a mixed together way, and some principle, some cause was needed to separate them out. And Anaxagoras tells us, and Aquinas renounce, uh, accounts, Anaxagoras reasoned to the existence of some intellectual being, some immaterial intellectual being to do that, but only to the existence of one such substance and not the sort that we would term, Aquinas says, an angel, but rather a mover that is the sort that we, he says, would call God. Aquinas next, in his little historical review, considers Plato's arguments for the existence of immaterial beings, notably as forms that are separate substances, forms that are the abstract entities in which bodily things participate for their specific and generic natures. Unlike Anaxagoras, Aquinas explains, Plato concluded to the existence of more than one such being, since he held that there are as many separate substances as there are abstractions. So for example, there's the man Socrates, and he is a man because he participates in some separate form of man, but a more abstract notion is that of animal. Socrates has to participate in animal, as does my dog Frega, and we keep going and going in abstractions, and so we have a multiplicity of separate entities, immaterial beings. Finally, Aquinas identifies a third approach, notably that of Aristotle, Aristotle's method for proving the existence of separate substances. How? Well, from looking at the motions of the celestial bodies and pointing to uh, a uh, need for some sort of immaterial movers. Here we want to consider the Aristotelian notion of the structure of the universe, acknowledge the cosmology of the time, which Aquinas himself followed, namely that the earth is uh, at the center of the universe. And then we have these spheres surrounding it. Uh, perhaps better than to say we're at the center is to say that we're at the bottom. These spheres are more noble According to Aristotle, these spheres are of a higher grade of being than terrestrial substances. There's a cross-section that I provided to illustrate that structure. So what's the evidence that these spheres are more noble? Well, their motion is uniform. Its uniformity, Aristotle says, is perpetual. Uh, so how do we account for the perpetual, which is to say in the Aristotelian universe, eternal motion of these celestial spheres? Well, there must be certain movers that are themselves entirely unmoved. So since bodily beings are mobile in some way, Aristotle argued that, this, that the uh, movers of these spheres must be unmoved. They must be immaterial. And so he concluded that the end or goal of celestial motion, it's aiming towards some substance entirely separated from a, from a body. And observing that there are in fact several such motions of the heavenly bodies, Aristotle concluded that to account for the multiplicity of motions, there must also be a corresponding multiplicity of separate substances. Looking at the arguments as he presents them, Aquinas, that is, of these three philosophers, Aquinas concludes the following. These ways are not very suitable for us, since we do not assert 
with Anaxagoras the mixture of sensible things. We don't hold that all things were first in this primordial soup of matter and that God just pulled them out of it. Of course, he holds that God is a creator God making things out of nothing. Nor do we hold with Plato the abstraction of universals, which is to say we don't hold that there are separate forms in which beings participate for their natures. Socrates is a human in his very essence. He is an animal in his very essence. He is a body in his very essence. And all of these attributes are in him, in his formed matter. Nor do we hold with Aristotle for the perpetuity of motion. We don't hold that the universe is eternal. Hence, we must proceed by ways, other ways, to prove, to show the proposition at hand. An interesting use of the word pronoun here. We, when he says, hence, we must proceed. We do not assert with these philosophers. Who is the we? Certainly the reference is to his fellow Christians, uh, but not simply to them, I think, because the arguments that he says after this summary of this historical summary, the arguments that he says are suitable to us, for us, that he proceeds to offer are not theological or revelatory based. They're not based on scripture or revelation. Rather, they are philosophical in nature. So, yes, there are theological concerns with their arguments of these three, but they're also philosophical ones. Now, before proceeding to Aquinas's preferred arguments for proving the existence of angels, it's worth our while to consider his criticism, in particular, of Aristotle's argument, which might come at first as a surprise, since he reverentially refers to Aristotle as the philosopher. It might also become come as a surprise because Although Aquinas certainly differs with Aristotle regarding Aristotle's position on the eternality of the physical universe and the perpetuity of celestial motion, Aquinas does agree with Aristotle's position that the heavens are moved by separate substances, immaterial beings. Moreover, in Aquinas's treatment of the angels in the Contra Gentiles, he gives the same Aristotelian argument that we were just considering um, to prove the existence of angels from the motions of the heavenly bodies. But he uh, simply adjusts the language to make it work. Instead of describing their motion, the motion of the celestial bodies as perpetual, he tells us that it is a continuous motion, a regular motion, and an unfailing motion. So it doesn't matter that uh, these motions are not eternal. The real point is that these traits that we've just listed require an immaterial mover. Now, we'll see why in a moment, but we might ask if he's willing to make this adjustment here in the Contra Gentiles, why not make that argument or adjustment in his treatment of Aristotle in On Spiritual Creatures so that the argument would be suitable for us. I think one possible explanation is that Aquinas considers even the adjusted version of this argument from the motion of the celestial bodies, even that adjusted argument falls short of being demonstrative. And my reading, I think, is supported by what Aquinas has to say on this topic in response to a set of questions posed to him uh, by the then Master General of the Order of Preachers, John of Vercelli. So this is in 1271. John of Vercelli had posed to him 43 articles asking 43 questions on a variety of topics. He had requested the expert opinions on these articles, not only from Aquinas, but also from two other Dominican masters in theology at the time, Robert Kilwardby and Albert the Great. Now, of the 43 articles that Aquinas responds to, it's the first five that are of interest to us here, and these concern the role of God and the angels in moving the celestial bodies. And in the context of raising these questions, uh, John of Vercelli raises the question about what can and cannot be infallibly 
which is to say demonstrably, demonstrably proven. And given time constraints, what I'm going to do is focus on Aquinas' own response. And if anyone has uh, any questions during the q and I'm happy to address how he compares and contrasts with Kilwardby's and Albert's responses. Suffice it to say that among Aquinas' response and his replies, he notes his view that God moves the celestial bodies through the mediation of spiritual creatures, which is to say angels. So he just starts out by it's just asserting what his view is. And Aquinas makes clear that in saying this, he means that the celestial bodies, by his opinion, are moved by the angels. And he notes that this is a position that is, by his estimation, not denied by any authors that he remembers reading, he says, whether Sancti, the holy, or philosophers. And Aquinas recounts that then that the Platonists and Peripatetics, which is to say Aristotelian philosophers, have attempted to prove that what we call angels, the separate substances, move the heavenly bodies uh, through arguments that they, the Platonists, the Peripatetics, consider to be demonstrative. Speaking for himself, Aquinas maintains that the celestial bodies could not possibly be moved solely by their own natures through natural forces. This is a point of difference between Aquinas and Kilwardby, who takes the novel position that uh, natural forces are sufficient to account for the motions of the heavenly bodies. But for Aquinas, this is a position he insists that is omnino impossibile, entirely impossible. Why? For the reasons we have noted the continuity uh, and the unfailingness of the motions of the heavenly bodies. So if the bodies, these celestial bodies are not immediately moved by God, and Aquinas grants that they could be, but either they're immediately moved by God, but he doesn't think that's the case. So if they're not, it follows that either they are animated and moved by their own souls, which is a common opinion among the Aristotelian philosophers leading up to his time, or that they are moved by angels. So these are the only three possibilities. Of these possibilities, Aquinas concludes, it is more fitting to say that it is by angelic motion, by angelic movers, that the heavenly bodies are moved. Now, we find in this text that Aquinas is insistent that whatever moves these bodies, again, must be a spiritual and intellectual being. Moreover, he isn't hesitant to identify these beings, which the philosophers call intelligences, with the beings that both scripture and the saints call angels. And yet, with that said, he also indicates that he doesn't think it is infallibly proven that the heavens are moved by the angels. Rather, he indicates that these spheres could just as well be moved by a celestial soul or directly by God himself. In sum, his acknowledgement of these other possibilities indicates that Aquinas considers the argument from the motion of the celestial spheres, spheres to the existence of angels to be at best probable and not demonstrative because we've got these other options open. This reasoning is confirmed by what Aquinas has to say on the same topic in another set of expert responses that Aquinas provided later that same year to the lector at the Venetian Priory, Prior Baxianus of Lodi. There he's posed with 36 articles to which he graciously took the time to reply. Aquinas again addresses the question of whether anyone has infallibly proven, that is to say, demonstratively proven, that the angels are the movers of the heavenly bodies. And he replies as follows. The books of the philosophers abound with such proofs, which they consider to be demonstrations. And then he gives his own view. He says, it seems to me, likewise, that it can be demonstratively proven that the celestial bodies are moved by some intellect, either immediately by God or in a mediated way by angels. 
But the position that God would move through mediating angels is more fitting with the order of things, which Dionysius has maintained is unfailing, infallibilum, though in, un, uh, infallible, so that according to the usual course of events, lower things are directed by God through intermediaries. In sum, Aquinas here tells us that the philosophers think that they have offered demonstrations for the existence of angels from the motions of the celestial bodies. Does Aquinas agree with them? Yes and no. Yes, it can be demonstrably, demonstratively proven from those motions that some intellect moves the celestial bodies. But does he agree that this must be an angel? No, since the mover could be God himself. So Aquinas appears willing to grant demonstrability only to the entire disjunctive proposition. The celestial bodies are moved either by God or by the angels. Implicit, the indication we can't say for sure which one it is. So the implication is neither disjunct alone is demonstrable since the truth of the other is a possibility. At best, therefore, one could offer a probable argument for the existence of angels from the mo motions of the celestial bodies. In fact, Aquinas confirms this reading in the lines that follow when he describes such an account of celestial motion merely as, as we see, more fitting in that third paragraph than an immediate motion by God. It is more fitting because of the hierarchical order of the universe identified by Dionysius. So we find Aquinas trading on the Latin word infallible. You know, he's asked, can it be infallibly proven that the angels move the celestial bodies? But this is what he does with the word infallible. He says, it is this hierarchical order that is infallible, which is to say unfailing. He does not say that any argument for the existence of angels from the motion of the heavens is itself an infallible, in other words, demonstrative argument. So let's consider again Aquinas's treatment of the angels in On Spiritual Creatures, that Article 5. You'll recall, and I've highlighted it here, Aquinas had dismissed Aristotle's line of reasoning, along with Plato's and Anaxagoras's, as uh, not very suitable for us. Now, granted, he explicitly rejects Aristotle's argument because it presumed the eternal motion of the celestial bodies. But as I've noted, Aquinas in the Contra Gentiles is willing to adjust that argument. So why then doesn't he simply do the same in On Spiritual Creatures? Again, I'd suggest that one explanation is precisely the fact that he considers even the adjusted argument to be merely probable rather than demonstrative. After rejecting the three arguments of these historical characters, Aquinas gives three arguments of his own that he does take to be suitable for us. And what's nice is it's, it takes a very different approach. Uh, it does not depend on the now recognized, outdated, and obsolete cosmology of the day, where the Earth is at the center of the universe and we have all these spheres surrounding it. Instead, what Aquinas does is he, instead of looking at the phenomenon of motion or of any other effect and reasoning back in the usual way that he does, or the, always the way that he does to prove the existence of God, reasoning from effect back to cause, he has a different methodology to prove the existence of angels. Instead, he reasons to their existence from what we might call their perfecting role in the universe. And I'm going to briefly walk through each of these arguments in turn. Aquinas's first argument in Article 5 begins by asking us to consider the perfection uh, of the universe. And here we want to keep in mind that, you know, the language of perfection for Aquinas, metaphysically speaking, is not talking about some unattainable ideal. Uh, rather, it, it's another way of talking about the completion of something. 
So if a chair has all its parts and it's functioning as a chair and it's not wobbly, it's a perfect chair. We don't mean it's the ideal chair. We mean it is complete. So Aquinas looks at the universe and asks, what is needed for its perfection? Such a consideration, he contends, will make clear that there has to exist some substances that are entirely without body since the perfection or completion of the universe seems to be such that it doesn't lack any nature that can possibly exist. He then sets forth the following principle. If any two things exist, and if one of these does not depend on its nature, uh, uh, by its nature depend upon the other, it is, a, it is possible for that one to be found existing without the other. For example, animal nature does not depend upon rational nature. So he tells us it's possible to find animals that exist that are not rational. Having enunciated what we might call this principle of possibility, Aquinas then notes that it's possible that it belongs, excuse me, to the nature of substances to exist per se, through themselves, in their own rights, unlike accidental traits like quantities and qualities, etc. This mode of existing, subsistence, is a mode of existing that does not, as such, require a bodily nature. Why not? Because it belongs to the nature of bodies, as such, to have the accidents of dimensions. Sure, if it's a bodily substance, it's going to have dimensions, but their existence their subsistence, the fact that they exist per se, is not caused by the accidents of dimension. So he concludes that after God, who is not contained in any genus, there have to be found substances in the genus substance that are entirely without bodies to complete or perfect the universe. Aquinas' second argument for the existence of angels starts by looking at the order of the universe. Here he enunciates what has been called by scholars the so-called principle of continuity. In any order, uh, one extreme cannot be reached from the other except through things in the middle. Aquinas offers an example from the corporeal order, given again, given the cosmology of his time, noting that the element of fire is found immediately under celestial body and under that the element of air, then water, and finally earth an order that follows the nobility and subtlety of these bodies. Looking beyond this philosophy of nature to the metaphysical order, he then notes that at the summit, something that exists that is in every way simple and one, namely God. Now applying the principle of continuity to this order, Aquinas argues that it's impossible for corporeal substance to lie immediately below God, because such substance is entirely composed and divisible. There must therefore be many intermediary beings that come between the highest divine simplicity and corporeal multiplicity. Some of these beings are incorporeal substances that are united to bodies, namely the human soul, whereas others are incorporeal substances that are not united to bodies, namely angels. Aquinas' third argument proceeds from the distinctive characteristic or character or nature, ratio, of intellect. As he explains, the activity of intellectual understanding cannot be performed by a body. So the sort of substance that performs this activity of intellectual understanding does not depend upon a body to have existence, but is elevated above body. And then he Trots out the medieval axiom, as a thing is, so it acts. Acting follows existence. Therefore, if some intelligent substance is united to a body, it isn't united to a body because it is intelligent, but for some other reason. He's thinking about the human soul here. The human soul is intellectual. Indeed, it's united to a body because without the body, the human soul would lack the activity of abstracting phantasms. So the idea is we need to go out into the world and have sensory experiences of things, uh, form these sensory images in our brain, 
And from these phantasms, the intellect abstracts away, takes away an abstract universal concept, which it needs in order, but it needs to start with these phantasms in order to make intellectual understanding complete. So that's why the human soul is joined to the body in terms of its intellectual operation. Still, Aquinas explains that this activity of abstracting is only incidental to the intellectual operation, even of the human soul. In fact, he notes, it is an imperfection of intellectual activity for us to acquire knowledge in this way, just as it is an imperfection of sight, according to medieval biology, that a bat needs darkness in order to see. Having drawn this distinction, Aquinas then enunciates the following two principles. First, whatever belongs to a thing incidentally is not found in all cases of that type of thing. Second, in any genus class, perfect being is found before imperfect being because the perfect is naturally prior to the imperfect as act is prior to potency. So in light of these two points, these two principles, Aquinas concludes that there must exist some incorporeal substances that do not need a body for their intellectual activity. And so such substances are not united to a body. Okay, that's a very quick crash course in those three arguments. Unfortunately, nowhere within them does Aquinas explicitly tell us what he considers their probative force to be. Are they demonstrative? Are they merely dialectical by his estimation? What we do find, however, is a common thread running throughout all three, the notion of perfection, either stated explicitly or implicitly acknowledged. Again, the first argument states that created separate substances are required for the perfection of the universe, since the universe requires all possible fundamental natures to be complete. The second argument reasons from the order of the universe, uh, the systematic order we might think as the parallel like an ecosystem. And so on a metaphysical scale, something similar is being acknowledged by Aquinas, but as he explains in numerous passages elsewhere, the perfection of the universe consists precisely in its order. So we see the note of perfection implied there again. If the implication is that if the universe as God has made it did not contain any wholly incorporeal beings, angels, it would be disordered and hence imperfect. Finally, in the third argument, Aquinas reasons that in any genus, the perfect is found before the imperfect. Considering the nature of intelligence, he shows that man is indeed an intelligent substance, but is an imperfect intelligent substance. Therefore, the perfection or completion of the genus, the genus intelligent substance, requires that there be a perfect intelligent substance, namely an angel. So this, this underlying theme of perfection in these three arguments it might lend to the impression that Aquinas is simply presenting arguments from fittingness. It's fitting, it's suitable, it's appropriate, and hence these are just probable arguments by his estimation. So again, put it in other words, it might seem as though he's simply saying that the universe as we know it would be a better place if angels existed, and so it, we should presume that they do. But I think this reading... Uh, it could follow if his notion of perfection were of some superlative or unattainable ideal that admitted only of approximation. But that's not Aquinas's notion of perfection, as I've noted before. For him, again, to be perfect is simply to be complete. So when we consider these three arguments in light of this fact, I think it becomes clear that he views the angels as perfecting, completing the universe because they are parts necessary parts that somehow complete the whole that is the universe. So when he argues that their existence would perfect, for example, the genus intelligent substance, or the universe as a whole, or the order of the universe, Aquinas isn't arguing simply that these items would just be a little bit better off if angels existed. 
Rather, what he's arguing is that these items would be lacking and incomplete if angels didn't exist. And the implication is that the existence of angels, therefore, is somehow required for their perfection, their completion, and they need to be complete. So viewed from this perspective, these arguments appear to be, I think, intended as more than mere probable arguments. With that said, it's important to bring out a distinction that Aquinas himself draws elsewhere between two types of good that perfect the universe. He says, you know, one type simply adds to the perfection as a sort of adornment, making it more decorous. Such goods, he notes, those aren't necessary for the perfection of the universe. But others, he says, are indeed necessary for the perfection of the universe. And these sorts of items Aquinas refers to as essential parts of the universe, just as the heart is an essential part of a human being or the head or the soul. So with this distinction in mind, we can then ask, which sort of goods are the angels? Aquinas makes clear in various texts, he sees them as indeed essential parts. And it's their role as such parts that he appears to be arguing for in On Spiritual Creatures, again, suggesting that his three arguments for their existence in that text are intended as more than mere probable arguments. Aquinas presents the role of angels as essential parts of the universe in even clearer terms in the Prima Pars of the Summa, where he offers a single argument for their existence. Like that third argument from On Spiritual Creatures, this one is also founded on an analysis of the nature of intellect. But it adds to that argument a further point, namely that the existence of incorporeal intellectual creatures perfects not just the genus, the class to which they belong, but the universe as a whole. And here is that argument. Aquinas notes, and notice the strong language at the outset, it is necessary to hold that some incorporeal creatures exist. For what God principally intends in created things is the good, which consists in the assimilation to God. But a perfect assimilation of effect to cause is found when the effect imitates the cause according to the way in which the cause produces the effect, as what is hot makes something hot. God, however, produces a creature by means of intellect and will. Hence, the perfection of the universe requires that there be some intellectual creatures. Moreover, he adds, intellectual understanding cannot be the act of a body, nor can it be the act of some bodily power, since every body is determined to the here and now. Hence, he concludes, it is necessary to hold, strong language, that there must be some incorporeal creature so that the universe be perfect. Now, what I want to bring out is regardless of what scholars might think in their assessment of this argument's probative force, Aquinas himself reveals his own conviction of its strength. The perfection of the universe, we're told, requires that there be angels, which is a position that we must, he tells us, necessarily hold. This language of necessity provides evidence that Aquinas considers his line of reasoning here to be demonstrative. Now, what sort of demonstration he might consider it to be, uh, we can discuss perhaps during the Q&A. For now, it's worth noting simply that for Aquinas, the conclusion that angels exist is, in some sense, a necessary conclusion. And, and in bringing this out, Aquinas isn't adopting a sort of Leibnizian view that God is somehow obliged to produce the best possible world, which includes angels. No. To see why not, it's helpful to employ a distinction here drawn by Aquinas's commentator, Cardinal Cajetan, when looking at this very text. Cajetan draws a distinction that he finds elsewhere in Aquinas between what he terms grades of being versus the special modes of those grades. Grades of created being are determined by various degrees, fundamental degrees of act and potency. 
And so there's a finite or limited number of such grades. The supreme of these is most like God, Kajitan notes, and this is the grade of intellectual being. As regards the special modes or species of beings, there's again only a finite number in, in actuality, but the number of these species is infinite in light of both their logical possibility and what is within God's power. There are all sorts of species that God can create. Moreover, no species is supremely creatable such that God couldn't create a greater one. So if we follow Kajitin's reading, Aquinas isn't saying in these arguments that the perfection of the universe requires the creation of any given species such as dog, oak tree, or rhinestone. Rather, what Aquinas is indicating is that it requires the creation of at least some species of material beings. And similarly, the perfection of the universe does not require the existence of any particular angel, such as Michael or Gabriel, but it does require some, or at least one, immaterial being. If Cajetan's reading of Aquinas is correct, we might still ask why the universe needs to be perfect at all. Isn't it within God's power to create an imperfect one? And moreover, isn't he free to create a universe without angels? We find answers to these questions in another text in Aquinas's De Potentia, written shortly after the prima pars of the Summa. Uh, sorry, shortly before. Uh, there in question three, article 16, Aquinas considers whether a multitude can proceed immediately and properly from one first thing, namely God. And Aquinas grants that God is not necessitated by his own productive power to produce certain effects. God's power is infinite. None of his effects are equal to that power. So his power can't be determined by necessity to any single effect or to any degree of distance. But then Aquinas notes that neither is God's creative act necessitated to produce any given an effect from the end of his intention. As he explains, the end of God's intention is the divine goodness, which gains nothing from the production of effects, which is to say God is not diminished by not creating a universe at all. And he's not increased by creating anything in the universe because God's goodness can't be fully represented by any effect or fully communicated to it. So his goodness can be participated in many ways. So there's no necessity for any of his effects to exist in any given way. So why do we conclude that there must be angels? Well, examining final causality further, Aquinas acknowledges that a sort of necessity does arise when something is needed either to fulfill the intention of the end, or excuse me, to fulfill the intention of the end. In this respect, he concludes that there can be what he calls a suppositional necessity in God's work. As Aquinas explains, since the form of any God's work is finite, it has a determinate mode of being that requires determinate principles for it to exist. It requires certain parts. For example, if God intends to make a human being, then he's got to give this human being uh, a body with a rational soul. And Aquinas says, and I'm wrapping up now, we find a similar situation as regards the universe as a whole. The fact that God wished to make the universe such as it is, is not due to a necessity or obligation either from the end or from the power of the efficient cause, or from the matter as has been shown. Instead, supposing that he did wish to produce such a universe, this sort of universe that we encounter, it was necessary that he produce these sorts of creatures from which such a form of the universe would have arisen. And since the very perfection of the universe would require both a multitude and diversity of things, for this perfection can't be found in any one of them due to any one of their distance from the first goodness, it was necessary from the supposition, in other words, if God intended to create such a universe, if he intended such a form, God would produce many and diverse creatures. Some of them would be simple, some of them would be composite. Some of them would be corruptible, and some of them would be incorruptible, namely the angels. 
So with this text, we find Aquinas willing to identify some of God's effects as necessarily created, but he's careful to note that they are created out of a suppositional necessity, not an absolute one. In other words, supposing, granting that God creates this kind of universe, which we can observe and reason about, then it needs to have its requisite parts, just as it is the case that on the supposition, granted that God creates human beings, then he must create them with their requisite parts. In sum, Aquinas' position is that, given the observable form of the universe that God has clearly intended, its perfection requires the creation of certain fundamental grades of being, including those immaterial ones that we call angels. And Aquinas is clear. This suppositional necessity, as he puts it, is due to a, not to a limitation of God's power, or an obligation of his goodness, but from the order of his wisdom, so that the perfection of the universe would be established in the diversity of creatures. So the key takeaway here is that not as though his power is constrained, is not as though his the freedom of his will is constrained, rather the suppositional necessity follows from the order of God's wisdom, that namely that the essential parts of the universe receive their suppositional necessity, and that they be created. In summary, Aquinas acknowledges that God is indeed free to create a different universe, presumably with or without angels, but given the order of wisdom and this given universe that God did in fact freely intend to create, the universe must be perfect, and to be perfect, it must include the simple substances we call angels. As Aquinas tells us, every single one of the separate substances is a principal part of the universe, much more so than either the sun or the moon, for each of them is its own species and is more noble than any species whatsoever of corporeal things. Thank you for your time and for your attention.